Well, we are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, it's a journey that we've been on, and it's kind of one of those things, it's almost like the biblical miracle here, where, you, where Jesus takes a modest amount of material and it seems to get bigger and bigger. Uh, that's kind of what the Gospel of Matthew has been like, as we've talked about feeding of the 5,000, and in the case of today, we're going to be talking about Jesus feeding the 4,000. And I have to admit that when I came to this particular section of script, Scripture, where Jesus feeds the 4,000, I considered just kind of moving past it, saying, you know, we've pretty much already covered this, and so it's, this, it's the same miracle, basically, and we'll just move on. But uh, the Holy Spirit gave me reason to pause and to ask the question, which I think is an important one that we should always ask when we come to the Scripture, is that if both the Gospels of Mark and Matthew include the feeding of the 5,000 and also include the feeding of the 4,000, then it's there for a reason. And so if it's there for a reason, we need to look a little bit more closely to it. And so we begin by asking the question, why would the Scripture include, why would the Gospels include these two miracles which seem so similar? Uh, feeding the 5,000 and feeding the 4,000. And one of the things that I think we take for granted in our kind of day and time is the idea that Jesus came for the salvation of all, of all people, regardless of race, regardless of culture, regardless of gender. Jesus came for the salvation of all. But this is an idea which is only formed really uh, in, the, in the early church. In fact, the early church quickly transitioned from being a church that was more Jewish to being more non-Jewish. And in the scripture, the non-Jewish people are called the Gentiles or the Greeks. Both those terms are referring to non-Jewish people. So when the scripture refers to, says Jews or Greeks, it's not specifically talking about people from Greece. That's just, that was just a general term for people who were not Jewish. And it really goes into the whole point behind this section of scripture, which starts at verse 21, and we began to look at last week, which is the, to answer the question. I believe that the Gospels are answering this question what do we do with the Gentiles? What about the Gentiles? Where do they fit in to the, the story here? I'm sorry, could someone uh, take our young lady here and like either outside and run? or <laughs> That would be helpful, I think, to a lot of us, including me. Thanks. So we talked about this last week, the question of the Gentiles and where they fit into the plan of God. And I won't go into it uh, in depth this week because we did it last week and if you want to look at the at the sermon from last week you can certainly do that but last week in short we saw the story of Jesus and how he, he deals with this woman this Gentile woman who comes to him asking him to heal her daughter she's demon possessed and if you remember last week Jesus responds to her in a way which mirrors basically the way the Old Testament uh, responds to the salvation question of the Gentiles at first it's silent and then it's hostile, and, and then there's a disdain, which is kind of where Jesus is at in his time with the Pharisees. Finally, it gets to this point where there's a, there's a blessing that is expressed, where Jesus says to the woman who keeps pressing him, O woman, your faith is great, and it shall be done for you as you wish. And after this breakthrough moment, we read that Jesus continues to act among the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, in a way which is very similar to the way he acts among his own people, the Jews. And so we see this in Matthew 15, starting at verse 29. It says, Jesus left there, speaking about the woman who was the, the Gentile, and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. 
And this is very familiar, isn't it? It's very familiar to how Jesus reacts among the, his, the Jewish people. And if you have to remember, I told you last week, the Sea of Galilee, one side is Jewish territory, the other side is non-Jewish territory. So when Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee, he goes from Jewish territory to Gentile territory. And he does the same thing. He walks along, and he sits down, and he begins uh, to teach. By the way, I think one of the things is the most frustrating thing when I, when I do slides, this is a total rabbit chase, is finding a picture of Jesus that, that I like. How many of you have ever seen a picture of Jesus that your soul just goes, I like that one? Not, no one's raising their hand, right? It's kind of an interesting spiritual thing, isn't it? I think that there's a, a connection to Jesus that is just impossible to, to get with art. And, uh, so anyway, anyway, sorry about that. I just find that interesting. Okay, so, so then he goes, he sits down, and says, Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid him at his feet, and he healed them. And the people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. So that phrase there, they praised the God of Israel, reminds us that he's working among uh, Gentiles. And the Gentiles... The non-Jewish people, you have to remember, there are many gods. People believed in many gods. And the Gentiles were like, the Jews have their god. We have our god. And they're not really going to have anything to do with each other. And even though in the Old Testament, the desire of God was for the Jewish people to be a light unto the Gentiles, that they would come to know the true God, the Jewish people had also sort of withdrawn within themselves. They didn't want anything to do with the Gentiles. The Gentiles didn't want anything to do with the Jews. And so there was this split. And so when they praised the God of Israel... They're going outside of themselves. They're going outside of what is normal within their society to praise this God that is the Jewish God, which they would look across the Sea of Galilee and pretty much say, those are those folks, we're our folks, nothing, has, nothing comes together. But Jesus starts to bring them together. And so, as he begins to, to feed, before we read this passage of feeding the people, we need to understand that he's been healing them and teaching with them for three days when it comes to the point that they're hungry. And after healing them, Jesus isn't tired. That's not, the, that's not the sense that we get that he's tired, but he's concerned about them. And it says this, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. And his disciples answered, where can we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? It's interesting they have this question. Because they've just been part of this miracle of feeding the 5,000. But just like us, when God blesses us last week, we have our crisis this week. And sometimes we wonder, was God going to be there? Is God going to be there? And the, the disciples are sort of the same way. They've just been part of this big miracle. But now they're questioning again, well, how is this going to happen? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. And we talked about this in the Feed the 5,000. Jesus gives thanks. He follows the same process that even we do in communion. He takes the bread, gives thanks, breaks it, gives it to the disciples. The disciples give it to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate were 4,000 besides men and besides women and children. 
After Jesus sent the crowd away, he got into a boat and went into the vicinity of Magadan. And this is going back into Jewish territory. So as we read this story, the story has some obvious elements that are similar to the feeding of the 5,000, right? You have this huge crowd. They only number the men. They, they have very little to work with, but then Jesus multiplies it and hands it out. And unlike the story of the Canaanite woman, which we talked about last week, there is no kind of uh, story that the church has settled on that this is what it means. Uh, this particular story has some elements into it which people have seen for centuries. And this feeding of the 4,000, you see that it's a crowd that's different than the 5,000. The 5,000 was mostly a Jewish crowd. And when Jesus feeds the 5,000, the Jewish crowd, he does so with five loaves. And when they're finished, they, just, they gather up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. You know that story, right? And, then, and for the Jewish people, the number five is a significant number because it represents the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the first five books of the Bible. And the Pentateuch was among the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The thing that they would agree on was the word of God. The Pharisees also included the words of the prophets as the word of God. The, the Sadducees didn't. The Sadducees only thought about the first five books as the word of God. So the first five books are very important to all of Judaism. They all agreed upon that. And then when they pick up the 12 basketfuls of leftovers, many people believe that this represents the 12 tribes of Israel. So, in short, when Jesus feeds the Jewish crowd, he feeds them with five loaves representing the Pentateuch, which is the word of God from creation up to the law of Moses. And then they gather in 12 basketfuls of leftovers representing the 12 tribes of Israel. When he feeds this Gentile crowd, the subtle difference is that he feeds them with seven loaves. And they pick up seven basketfuls of leftovers. And throughout the Bible, the word seven is, I mean, the word, the number seven from Genesis all the way through Revelation is a number which is a symbol of completeness. It's a symbol of the, the complete work of God being finished. And so, for example, the creation takes place in six days, God rests on the seventh. You see all throughout the, the scripture, you know, seven scrolls, seven seals, things like this. The completeness of God's work or the completeness of God's word is often found in the, in the symbolic use of the word seven. So when he feeds this Gentile crowd, which you have to remember at the time, the Jewish people did not believe that the Messiah would come for the Gentiles. He feeds them with seven loaves, and he recovers seven basketfuls of leftovers, just as that symbol and that sign that God includes the Gentiles. There's a completeness in his grace that is represented in feeding the 4,000 of a crowd that is mostly Gentiles and non-Jewish people. And so this is important. This is, this is something that began to, and I believe the reason why the gospel writers include this, is because it, has, it begins to change the mind of, of the Jewish people that the Messiah is also for the Gentiles. And this idea that of the completeness of grace and the inclusion into the community of Christ of both Jew and Gentile, slave or free, male or female, is later expressed by the Apostle Paul in almost all his letters. Here are four different examples where he, talk, where he uses this phrase where he talks about that we are all included in Christ. He says this in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 through 14, the body is a unit. He's speaking of the church here. 
and that inclusion within the community of Christ, which is the church. It says, though it is made up of many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, or, or Gentiles, slaves or free. And we are all given one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. He uses this also in the book of Romans. He's talking about salvation here. He says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And finally in Galatians, he says this, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. This idea of being clothed with Christ is also a common uh, metaphor that Paul uses. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we see, we see throughout the New Testament, particularly in the letters of Paul, that he's emphasizing this inclusive aspect of Christ. That when we are in Christ, it doesn't mean that we lose our gender. It doesn't mean that we, we lose who we are. I will always be you know, a person born in the United States. Some of you will always be people born in Nigeria or people born in Germany, and you'll have that, that nationality. It doesn't mean all of a sudden it disappears, but it means that we are regarded the same by God, whether we be slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, American, German, Nigerian, you know, Chinese, whatever it is, as long as you're in Christ. And this is important to understand because we hear a lot about this word inclusive today. And I want to talk about it because I think sometimes this is where the church kind of goes off the beam. You see, the world right now, when it talks about inclusiveness, what it celebrates is that no changes are necessary to be included in the community or the society. You know, it's like, just come on in and you don't need to change anything. You can be absolutely who you are and you can say that, you know, you identify as, as whatever you identify as and it's all the same. You can come in. No changes are necessary. And regardless of what may be good or may be bad, you know, whatever your opinion is about this concept of inclusiveness, that particular definition, this one here, the celebration of no change being necessary, couldn't be further from what Christ expects when we come to know him. There, now it's true, you have this old hymn, Just As I Am, Without One Plea, that Jesus, my Savior, died for me and we come to him. We can come to him just as we are, but we can't stay just as we are if we want to be included because what the scripture talks about over and over again is to be included in Christ. One not only has to change, but a person has to die to themselves. Death to self is the ultimate change. 
It is, it is rejecting everything that is selfish about us. Everything that about us that we want to build for ourselves, it's a rejection of that. It's a rejection of what we think is valuable. It's a rejection of what we think our goals are. It's a rejection of how we define our own righteousness, how we define our own goodness. It's a rejection of all this so that we can be defined by Christ, that we can be defined by his values, that we can be defined by what he finds good, that we can be defined by his life. And there's this saying, even among the secular world, that one of the great equalizers is death. And this is the same spiritually as well as physically. When there is a death to self, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek, whatever it is. In in modern day times, you can say whatever nationality you are. When you die to self, that is it. There's a death to self. The law and the demands of the law, whether whether you be Jew or Gentile, puts us to death spiritually because sin causes us to be separated from God. And it doesn't matter if you grow up Jewish and you have the law of Moses. When you break that law and you sin, you die spiritually. When you're a Gentile, you may not follow the law of Moses, but the scripture talks about there's a law of the heart. And when you know you've done something wrong, when you've been in a place of uh, sin with God, that relationship is broken. You die spiritually. And in that place of death, sometimes we try and hold on to life. We try and pretend we're still alive. This is, the vast, this is where the vast majority of people are. This is why the scripture says in John 3.16 and 17, it says, you know, John 3.16, everyone knows, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. But then 17 says, for, God, for Christ did not come into the world to judge the world but to save the world through him. And then, then it goes on to talk about those who are already not judged or those who are just in the place of normal life, they're dead already because that's the normal place of, of humanity. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen in that place of spiritual death. And to recognize that is one of the first steps to salvation because a lot of people don't recognize they're even lost. They don't recognize that they need Christ in this place. But when you recognize it, then there's this death to self, so that we could be reborn in Christ. And that's where this term born again comes from, being reborn in Christ. And the emphasis that the scripture makes is that we are all equally dead to sin. We need to all be equally dead to sin and to ourselves so that we can all be equally raised in Christ. And in this, we have the same inheritance before God. That's why the scripture specifically says we are all sons of, sons of God in Jesus Christ. Because in that day... Only the sons inherited. And so Paul, when he says we are all sons of God in Christ, means we all have equal inheritance, whether you be slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile. And in this, he's just acknowledging the fact that there's slavery in the world in his time. He's not endorsing it. He's just acknowledging it. It's there. Just like you could say today, whether you be rich or poor, or whether you be male or female, or whether you be from any other ethnic background, we all need to die to self so that we can all be alive in Christ. And the Bible talks about this. So I'm just going to take the rest of this time really to give the Bible the opportunity to speak for itself. And this is out of the book of Colossians. And if you have any questions about kind of who Jesus is and, and what, what is Christianity, the book of Colossians is a great book. It just kind of sums things up. And Paul writes this. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not earthly things. 
for you died. And your life is now hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. This is what we mean when we talk about death to self. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That pretty much sums up what it means to be in Christ as an individual and in Christ as a church. None of us, we all come to Christ with all our mess and all our baggage and all our sin and all our whatever, but we can't stay that way. To be included in the body of Christ means death to self so that there can be new life in Christ. And this concept of, getting, of death to self is one that you don't just do once. Let me tell you, as a person that's been on this faith journey for, I don't know, th over 30 years now, you don't just do this once. This death to self has to happen all the time. Because there's this little saying about a living sacrifice. The only problem with being a living sacrifice is that that living sacrifice wants to crawl off the altar and go on living. And so that person, that, those things have to be put to death again and again and again. And sometimes new things come up, new, new thoughts, new temptations, new circumstances that come up that maybe you, you weren't dealing with years ago. You know, I deal with things as a 50-some-year-old. As a that I never dealt with when I was 20. I just didn't have certain things I had to deal with back then, which are different now. I have to deal with, you know, my grown-up kids, which is different than having to deal with your little kids. Things change. Different temptations roll around. 
You know, as you get a little bit older, you start thinking more about things like your finances, your, your retirement, and you can start getting worried about, you know, have I set enough aside? Because when I was young and all on fire for Jesus, I didn't care a fig about saving anything for my retirement because, woohoo, I'm serving God. Jesus is coming back soon, which I hope he does. It sure make my retirement easier. But I didn't worry about it when I was 20. Now it's possible for that to become an idol for me in my 50s. I have to just be aware that there are certain things as time goes along that I have to put to death again and again and again. And it's the same for you. I think a lot of times when we become believers, we think, oh, that's just like one and done. I became a believer, got wet for Jesus, popped out of the water, one and done. Don't have to worry about, you know, setting my life before the Lord. Don't have to worry about having the Lord search out my heart anymore. I'm one and done. That's not how the faith works. It's a relationship. It's the idea of one and done would be like if you're married and you say that, you know, you love your wife once and you're done. I actually did a marriage counseling with a couple that did that years ago, not in this church. They were an older couple and they were on the rocks. They'd been married like over 30 years. And finally, sometime in the, in the discussion, I can't remember what exactly brought it around. She says, you never tell me that you love me. You never say the words, I love you. And this is no joke. The guy looked at her and looked at me and he says, well, I told you when we got married. And if it changes, I'll let you know. And I had to kind of tell this guy who was, when I was doing this marriage counseling, it was awkward because he's like about 20 years older than I was. I was like, it doesn't work that way with relationships. You know, you should know this already. But he didn't. I told you once, and if it changes, I'll tell you. One and done. That's kind of how we approach Jesus sometimes. You know, I love you, Jesus. I'm going to follow you. I, I, I confess my sins once, and I'm done. But the process of relationship requires being in relationship. It's a process of growth. But it begins with death to self so that you can have life in Christ. And then we are included in the body of Christ. It's available to everybody. But we have to be willing to conform to Christ. And this word, conform to something other than what we are, is a dirty concept. It's a dirty word in our society today. But it's a scriptural concept. We need to change to the image of Christ. We don't need to be about trying to change the image of Christ into us. We need to move toward him. And the only way we do this is death to self. There's nothing within any of us that can be polished up enough to present to the Lord and say, well, that's good. You should accept this part of me without expecting it to be changed. It's never going to happen. And for believers, many of you understand this in a way. I think, though, one of the places that people struggle with is this idea of death to self. They don't want to die to self. You think there's value in themselves because you're told over and over again, you're special. You may be special in that you're unique, but you're not unique in your need for Christ. Everyone needs Christ. And you have sin in your life. It may be a unique sin, but you have unique sin in your life that needs to be done away with through death to self so you can know him. And for believers, as we walk through this time, there's this tension we have, the tension of already but not yet. You know, we know we're already counted as righteous, but we know we're not yet there. We know that, you know, we are regarded as sinless because Christ died for our sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. But we struggle we fall. We need to lean upon the grace of God because we are not made perfect yet. And that's where grace comes in. That's the true meaning of grace. To get us through the places in this time on this earth, in this life, 
that we just cannot deal with by ourselves. The old church, the early church, you know what they used to teach about baptism? They taught when you're baptized, your sins up to the point of baptism were washed away. So what do you think the response was in the early church toward baptism? In the early, early church, they didn't baptize as infants. They waited till they were on their deathbed because they had this belief, they were being taught, that your sins are washed away up to the point of your baptism. Then after that, you're accountable for everything. And so people were not wanting to get baptized young because they're like, i got a whole life to live here. Uh, Constantine is a good example, this Roman emperor. He didn't get baptized so he was almost dead because he's like, ah, he's being told, your, your sins are washed away up to the point of your baptism. That's a bad teaching. That's not true. The, the, the waters don't wash away your sins. It's your faith in Jesus Christ. But after that point, we still have to live by grace because sometimes in this world... You go left, you walk into sin. You go right, you walk into sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a famous uh, German theologian in the Second World War. He got caught up, his family and him got caught up in the uh, assassination attempt of Adolf Hitler. And he was asked, before they tried to uh, have Hitler assassinated, by his brother-in-law, is this a sin that we're involved in? And Bonhoeffer said, it's a sin. It's a sin to try and kill another human being. It's a sin to try and murder another human being. In this case, it'd be a sin not to try and kill this man because of the misery he's bringing to the world. And so he says, this is why we need grace. Because if we do try and murder Hitler, it's a sin. If we don't do anything, it's a sin. This is why we need grace. Now, that's an extreme example. But there are many places in your life, in our life, we walk into sin. We don't even know it's sin yet. You know, there's some things we're just blind to. And the grace of God brings us through that. Grace is not something to be abused. It's not something to say, well, I'm going to do this sin, and I know God will forgive me, so I'm going to sin and just ask for forgiveness tomorrow. That's an abuse of grace. Grace, though, is getting you through these times in this world that's a fallen world, where if you go left, you sin. If you go right, you sin. If you go forward, you sin. If you go backward, you sin. You just can't get away from it. So there's grace to get us through. And that's where we celebrate, when we celebrate some of the uh, elements in the church that Christ gave us. There's a celebration of baptism, which you shouldn't wait until you're old and just about to die, by the way. Because the idea, you know, it's not the waters that save you, it's your faith. It's a, it's a symbol of your death to self and life in Christ. But it's not what saves you, it's your relationship with God. It's a, it's a very important step of obedience, but not of salvation. And also communion. We're given this, this symbol of communion by Christ. And why does he give us this symbol? He gives us a symbol so that we'll remember his death. But not just remember his death. As we take it, we are also participating in his death. We are participating in his body being broken. We are participating in the blood being shed for us. And in this participation, we are joining in the community of faith of which Christ is the head. So with that in mind... Let's go ahead and take communion. You, have, you should have your uh, elements there with you. And, uh, and we're going to take communion. If you, and if you are with us here at IBCD and you're not a member of this particular church, uh, as long as you are a confessed believer in Christ, and I kind of leave that to you as being a confessed believer in Christ, then you are welcome to participate with us in communion. But if you are not a believer, and I, and I don't want to make you feel excluded because we just talked about being included. But if you are not a believer, 
I would ask you out of respect for what this symbolizes, which is an inclusion in Christ to refrain from it. But if you are a confessed believer in Christ, you're welcome to participate in this inclusive aspect of what it means to be dead to self and alive in Christ. And so we read in the scriptures that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said to them, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Take and eat of it. As you do so, remember me. So we're going to say a little word of prayer, and then we'll take it together. Lord God, we thank you for how you have brought us into you. How you brought us out of our selfishness. How you brought us out of our darkness. How you brought us out of our place of death in sin, and had us understand that we can't work for this, we can't earn our salvation, we cannot make you owe us, but we can trust you. We can receive from you the gift that you freely hand out to us. And so, Lord, as we take this, we do so acknowledging your death and also acknowledging our death so that we can say, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that we live in this body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And so as we take this, may we be mindful of your sacrifice, which allows us to walk into that place of death to self without fear, knowing that by faith, we will find life in you. Amen. Jesus said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Take and eat of it, and as you do so, remember me. Then Jesus took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Throughout the Old Testament, blood is often shed, almost always shed, in, as a kind of sealing of the agreement between God and whoever is making the agreement with him. In the Old Testament, they expressed this through animal sacrifice. Scripture tells us there's no more need for animal sacrifice because Christ is the final sacrifice once and for all. His blood shed to break down the barriers of sin and to bring us to God. Lord God, we thank you for your sacrifice and your blood, the long and powerful symbol that it carried from Genesis all the way through the, through the scriptures and even into today. And we're thankful that there's no more need for a sacrifice of blood because your blood is able to overcome sin and death from the moment it was shed upon the cross until this very day and until you return at which point there are, all things will be made new and no more sacrifice will be necessary. But Lord, as we take it today, may we be mindful of our need, again, for death to self to be included in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Jesus said, this is my blood, which has been shed for you. Take and drink of it, and as you do so, remember me. <laughs> 